the upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, it, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he pinned me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If if Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose, and he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt, and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mention a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. Rock here on SmackDown, you're moments away from your matchup against Triple H, and I've got... Finally, The Rock has come back to Long Island! But before The Rock begins, let The Rock ask you a question. Were you just picking your nose? <laughs> no! He got you, Hermie! No, no, The Rock saw you picking your nose. You actually want to stand out in front of The Rock's locker room and pick your nose? <laughs> the Rock, I'll tell you what, you want to act like a little kid? The Rock says, take your finger and put it in your nose. No, no, Stick no. it in, Hermie! No! And you want to act like a kid, then you just stand there with your finger in your nose while the great one speaks. <laughs> and speaking of noses, tonight, it's going to be The Rock against Triple H. You know, Triple H, you actually think that The Rock did you a favor by beating Rikishi, allowing you to name your stipulation with your match against Austin. Well, that couldn't be farther from the truth, Triple H, because you see, the fact of the matter is this, is The Rock didn't win for you, The Rock won for himself. And tonight, The Rock is going to do something else for himself. You think, Triple H, that you're just going to skate through The Rock Show, skate through SmackDown, just because nothing's on the line? Well, the truth of the matter is this. True. No WWF title on the line. True. No stipulations on the line. There is one thing on the line, Triple H. Your ass is on the line. Stick your finger back, Hermie. (laughs) Glad Hermie wasn't picking his... um Excuse me. You see, Triple H, The Rock isn't gonna kick that ass just for himself. No, 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 no. The Rock is gonna beat it for one more person. And that person is a WWF champion, Kurt Angle. Oh, Kurt Angle. Don't think that The Rock has forgotten about you. The Rock hasn't forgotten about you, Kurt Angle. The Rock has said it before, he'll say it again. The countdown is on 10 days from now. Tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. You see, Kurt Angle, get ready, because The Rock is going to No Way Out. The Rock is beating you at No Way Out, and The Rock is going on to WrestleMania. 
So Kurt Angle, to Triple H, to Vince McMahon, to Stone Cold Steve Austin himself, you can't stop, can't stop The Rock. on the line right now is a former WWF backstage interviewer, announcer, producer. He was a Ring of Honor play-by-play announcer, and he's the current New Japan Pro Wrestling lead announcer. He's also a WON Best Announcer of the Year two years in a row. He is Mr. Kevin Kelly. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. John, it's great to be with you, and I'm hoping to make it three in a row. So if you can help a brother out when the ballots come out, you know what to do. Yes, absolutely, definitely. <laughs> now, what has been going on with you? I mean, you've been keeping busy with New Japan, who keeps putting out shows, whether it's New Japan Strong or on the New Japan World. So what's been kind of going on with you? Yeah, we had, uh, you know, the pause, uh, you know, when everything was shut down, and we were trying to figure out what to do for content because we wanted to give the subscribers of, uh, of NJPWWorld.com something to look at, something to focus on other than, the misery that was the COVID shutdown. And ever since everything's gotten back up and running, I'm busier than ever with, you know, been voicing the events from home and we've worked things out, you know, embracing technology to be able to turn around the shows pretty quickly. And we're coming up on a pair of live events where we'll be live with English commentary, the final night of block competition for world tag league 2020 and best of super junior 27. That's on December 6th. And then the finals of both tournaments, as well as a great card of action on December the 11th, will be live with English commentary for both events. That is awesome. And New Japan still, you know, kicking butts and, and doing such a great job. And it's funny, like years ago, I remember they lost AJ and Nakamura. It's like, oh, my God, now what are they going to do? Then they kind of rebound, then they lose Omega and, you know, whoever. And like, oh, now what are they going to do? Then they had Jay White and Evil and, and all these other guys to kind of step up. New Japan is consistently the best. Can you kind of, I don't know, put your finger on how they can just keep churning out and continually put out the best product? I think at its core, the the dojo system perpetuates kind of that constant flow of new and upcoming talent. And that at its core is really why things work best. If you think about, you know, one of the best tag teams over the last couple of years, uh, especially when you're talking about world tag league is David Finley and juice Robinson and juice, of course, you know, originally in NXT, but then started in the dojo in new Japan and, worked his way up the roster, and Finley was a a complete dojo product, as was Jay White. So those are, you know, foundational pieces that you can always build around with the right, you know, what makes the best matches? Well, you've got to have some conflict. You've got to have something to shoot for. And, but, but also sort of that consistency that you can always fall back to. Things happen in New Japan for a reason because they happen for a reason. And one of the main problems I know fans, of course, have with WWE, it's like, oh, they changed their mind on a whim and things seem to not matter. But everything in New Japan matters. So it makes it, as far as an announcer, it makes it very easy for me to be able to navigate the waters and tell the stories to the fans and explain the the reasons why things are happening in this way. That's really the reason why I think they can handle, you know, talent who decides they want to compete elsewhere. And to me, it's like, wow, they just continually, no matter what, no matter who they lose, injuries or whatever happens, they just keep on keeping on. Like they just will put on consistent shows, consistent matches. They're always great. And I feel like at the top of the heap, as long as you kind of don't lose Kazuchika Okada, I feel like all is right with the world. All is good. I mean, he is definitely, definitely one of the best in the world easily. Oh my gosh, yes, and and uh, you know throw Kota Ibushi in the mix, and 
you know, add Tetsuya Naito and even Tanahashi, who is beginning to slow down. So you've got, you know, kind of that, those four pillars, which really accentuate everything. And, and then of course, you know, you throw in uh bullet club, you throw in Suzuki goon, you throw in uh, the other stars, Sonata and Shingo and LIJ. And you have, it, you have interesting matches all the way through each and every year with your tournaments being kind of your pivotal moments where everything then leads into Wrestle Kingdom. Again, this year is two nights on uh, January 4th and 5th. That is going to be great again. And this two-night thing, last year was a huge success. Obviously, it did very, very well. Doing again this year with a little bit of a surprise with Kota Bushi losing to Jay White and, you know, Jay White getting mad to that briefcase for the number one contendership or the number one contender trophy, if you will. So it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where they're not predictable either. I mean, they're pretty damn good at being unpredictable. And I think that when, now that Ibushi's loss, Ibushi was the first one in 17 defenses of the G1 briefcase to lose. So unpredictability every once in a while is I think a good thing. It, it shakes, it shakes everything up. And that's kind of what Jay White has been, you know, since switchblade came on the scene, he has completely turned uh, the company upside down. They, he predicted that he would beat Omega for the U S title. And he did, he predicted that bullet club would turn on Omega and they did. He predicted all of these different things. He eventually betrayed chaos, which is what he said from the beginning he was going to do. And, you know, then he would, he would beat Okada. He would become the champion. He would do all these different things. So it's, it's no surprise that Switchblade Jay White would be the first one to beat the, uh, the rights holder certificate briefcase holder. And, and, uh, you know, for Kota Ibushi, but he does get his shot first. So that is a good thing. And we'll see how things shake out at the end of the two nights. With New Japan, and I'm just kind of like thinking back, I guess it's really 2015 and 2016. And how'd you kind of make your way in there? Was it through the relationship with Ring of Honor at this point? Yes, it was through Ring of Honor that I got to know, uh, you know, got to know some of the talent. But then at the same time, they were, they being New Japan World, wanted to, uh, expand their English commentary base. Instead of just doing a few big events throughout the year, they wanted English commentary to be part of the offering just as often or as close to often as they could with Japanese. So I, at you know, after doing a couple of events, and then I had to make a choice. And the lure of, of being able to call wrestling for New Japan Pro Wrestling was just too great. So, but yeah, it all started with, through the relationship with Ring of Honor, but then I made the decision that this is what I wanted to do full-time. What do you kind of think about the popularity of New Japan, not only in Japan, obviously, really, if you think about it, ever since kind of Okada really got the title and kind of, you know, in 2012, 2013, really started picking up momentum, they've been nothing but profitable, nothing but making money, nothing but going uphill since then, and obviously has a lot to do with a lot of other factors as well, Bullet Club and Tanahashi and, and this and that, but I feel like Okada is kind of the, the mainstay. So what is kind of your thought on the popularity of New Japan, not only in Japan, but the popularity in America? I think that the the role of English commentary certainly makes it a little bit more digestible for uh, the new fan. And even though we don't have any more, we don't have really that weekly television show with the top stars of New Japan Pro Wrestling from Japan. We have New Japan Strong now, but that's featuring a lot of American names um, and, and has been fairly consistent with Bullet Club and Kenta. We've seen some of that. But uh, I think that it's, the, you know, the English commentary has helped. There's, there's tremendous star power. The relationship we had with Access TV certainly helped. You know, when you can, when you can have a Chris Jericho come in and uh, be involved in issues with first Kenny Omega and then Tetsuya Naito and then Evil, you're going to, that's going to put more eyeballs on your product, you know, and we can't say enough about how Chris Jericho has helped New Japan. And I think also, too, that, in Japan, one of the things that, because they, they've sort of flipped their fan base in the early to mid-2000s, 
as popularity began to wane, the hardcores were the only fans remaining, and it was a lot of middle-aged men sitting there with their arms crossed. But now, over the last few years, because of the popularity and good looks and some young stars coming through, we started to see more more women and children come to the events. And if you get, you know, if the, if mom is paying for it, if mom is putting out the money for it, you know, then then you know it's okay. So we've we just see that sort of increase so it's not a a male it's male dominated let's just say in america still but the number of female fans that have embraced new japan pro wrestling you can't just wave away it's it's been fantastic in fact i've had conversations in japan with uh you know american female wrestling fans who've traveled to japan just to see new japan pro wrestling you know it's it's part of the whole cultural experience and and bringing the whole world together. It, it, wonderful to be a part of all of that. But I think that when you have, when you have matches and stars that people want to see, John, people will go out of their way to see it. No matter the sport, no matter the, you know, if, if you've got Aaron Rodgers versus Tom Brady, whether Aaron Rodgers is a Green Bay Packer or not, whether Tom Brady now plays with the Bucks, doesn't matter. That's going to be a marquee match that people are going to want to see. Same thing. And what do you think about the lore of the Tokyo Dome? I feel like that is obviously in Japan. It's huge in Tokyo, Japan. It's the, you know the, the big, big place, the mecca, the MSG, if you will, of, of the Far East. But what do you think about the Tokyo Dome? Oh my gosh! It's you know again we wake up every day when we're staying in Tokyo, and we we do usually stay at the Tokyo Dome Hotel. So we peer out the window, and we see it, and and the majority of the events in that we have in the Tokyo area or Corican Hall, which again is right in the shadow of the Tokyo Dome. So it's, it's a constant reminder all year long. It's the, it's the one place that wrestlers want to say that they want to compete in, you know, constantly. That, that's a goal of mine, Kevin. I want to get and be on the card and be part of Wrestle Kingdom. And there are very few other venues in the world that people set as a destination, whether as a fan or as a competitor. Madison Square Garden is one of them, and Tokyo Dome is another. It's awesome. I mean, just the and to be able to do two nights there for the Wrestle Kingdom and it, for it to sell out and it do so well. And I just love the, the production value of New Japan. I mean, when they do something, they absolutely do it right, and they've really been – just, I don't know, I feel like they've been so good and for so many years. It's hard to stay consistent for seven, eight years in a row, but I feel like they have. Well, I mean, and it's, it's, Yeah, look at, you know, when, uh, let's see, going back 2007, 2008, I think they sold 8,000 tickets for Tokyo Dome. Wow. And mm-hmm. last year, two nights, 70,000 tickets. So that's a big jump. In, yeah, in and, a little more than a decade. And they probably would have sold more, but they do that production, right? I mean, they kind of block off half the seats with that awesome production. Well, this was the first year. Last year was the first year, 2020, this still year, uh, was the first year that they had to open up more seats day up. And that was for the first night. And then I think, you know, there, there's a bit of a habit. Oh, January 4 is Wrestle Kingdom. Yep. So the attendance day two was a little less. But you have one one setup, one teardown, and you probably negotiate a little better deal on the building, getting it for two nights as opposed to one. So I would think that, you know, Wrestle Kingdom 2020, you know, Wrestle Kingdom 14 was the most profitable one of all time by far. New Japan, man, they're just uh, kind of on a roll and you kind of see what they're up to, but no more access TV. I mean, they're obviously New Japan strong and New Japan world, which is kind of housing New Japan strong. I mean, they're, kind of doing really well and stuff, but what do you think about getting back in TV? Cause they were trying to make a real, you know, um, stronghold here in America, but they kind of lost the TV. And obviously with COVID, there's no traveling. Do you think that they need that TV show or somewhere to be on TV in America again? No, well, it, it certainly wouldn't hurt as long as it's the right deal for the company. I'm sure that, you know, a deal can be made. I, I, I think a lot of things were in the works and then everything kind of, uh, slowed down conversation wise with COVID because of the unpredictability and the television industry is in a bit of a flux right now too. So having the 
mainstay having the destination be njpwworld.com, I think kind of gives people always that home base. But again, you know, we're, we're far removed from the days where basic cable and then your few premium channels was the only offering. You know, there's so many now avenues through streaming that it's, you know, it's, I, I don't think it's as big of a deal as it used to be, but it certainly can be financially beneficial for a company. You look at WWE and the strength of their balance sheets is all predicated on their, on their television deals. So like I'm saying, if the, if the right financial opportunity came around, I'm sure that, uh, you know, a television, a television network would be foolish to bypass New Japan just because of, uh, uh, you know, perception of language barrier distance away from live events. It's a global product. And uh, I think that it would be wonderful to have a, a television home. I know this isn't really your area of expertise, or you're not calling the shots on this, but AEW has been, you know, making deals with Impact and MLW and, and NWA and whoever else. Do you think that AEW and New Japan Pro Wrestling could make a deal? Because it seemed like it was definitely not going to happen with, with uh, Harold Mage, and then now that he's gone, it seems maybe more likely, Tony Khan was saying. But what do you think about AEW and New Japan? Not needed, needed, would be nice. What's kind of your thought on it? Uh, not needed, but would be nice. And I think, again, you look at, you know, because as we record this, the uh, everybody is talking about uh, – what happened with Don Callis, my, my former broadcast partner, who once again is stirring the drink that is the world of pro wrestling and has not only got Kenny Omega wearing the AEW title, but also says that he's going to bring him to impact to make his first statement as the new AEW champion. That's a coup. That is a tremendous get for, for Don and for access and for uh, the former are they still access tv no it's still access tv yeah, yeah and and uh and impact wrestling you can't do much better than that so if if the right opportunity came around i'm sure that they would be i can't imagine that both sides couldn't come together and and sit down and work out a deal if it's mutually beneficial for both parties sure why not so maybe this will be the impetus to to get something done with with uh impact wrestling being sort of the trial balloon and, and predicating on the success of that, will will a deal come about between the two companies? It, again, it's got to work out for AEW. It's got to work out for New Japan. Very true. Very true. And, you know, it, it's interesting with all this stuff going on, the impact and then the sting uh, returning. AEW is definitely trying to make its mark. And I feel like if they're missing one thing and that, that people thought was going to be kind of a just uh, a foregone conclusion after all in and after all this stuff, people were thinking like, okay, we're going to see, you know, Okada, we're going to see Tanahashi on AEW, we're going to see Naito. So I feel like that's the one thing that's kind of been missing for them. Uh, it could be big, and it could be big for, you know, uh, Tokyo Dome shows to keep getting, you know, the John Moxley's and you know, maybe Archer back again and getting those, you know, getting their talent too. So it might be a fun talent exchange. I would think that once uh, the world kind of uh, settles down post-pandemic, that it'll be easier to take a look at, you know, those types of opportunities. Because right now, anybody traveling to Japan has to have the right kind of visa and then has to quarantine for 14 days before they can do anything. So that's, you know, if you're an AEW, that's two weeks of television, plus the event, plus traveling back home. So really, it's three weeks of television, depending on where they would be taping. Are they going to a state that then would require you to quarantine for 14 days when you return? So now we're looking at five weeks. So right now, it's, right now is not the time. But I would say probably next year uh, and, and you know years down the road, absolutely. I think it would be uh, – it's a no-brainer. As far as you, and I'm just always kind of curious of this, like this, we're going to go back a few years here, obviously, but when you get make the call or get the call to get to the WWE, then known as the WWF, how does that go down? Like, how did you get noticed? How did you get signed? I know that we're going all the way back to 1996 here, but it's something always just kind of curious with me. It's like, wow, where do they kind of find everybody? You know, where do they get this guy or where did he come from? So what is your kind of beginnings as far as 1996 and WWF is concerned? 
Well, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version because it's a pretty long story, but I had a, a long-standing friendship with Billy Gunn going back to our days in Florida. And I had asked Billy if they were ever looking for a local ring announcer for any of the Florida events. Keep me in mind, okay? Then, flash forward, he brought my name up, and Bruce Pritchard said, oh, I've been looking for him because Vince wants to step away from the microphone, so they want to hire another announcer. And I got, I got the call, I got an audition, and I got offered the job. I had to move to Connecticut and wound up spending seven years in WWE. It was a great experience. I learned a lot. But it was, you know, it's through relationships that you make. It certainly didn't hurt. And uh, I think I was the, I was the, the top choice out of everybody because it was pretty much like uh, I think they had a lot of different people in and out that were from different sports or different genres of entertainment. If you, if you want to hire a wrestling play-by-play guy, I think they need to know something about wrestling. So I, I probably had a little, you know, little of that going for me. And, you know, didn't aggravate anybody when I was there, at least not at first. And, and, then, uh, and then so that was, that was how it all got started. But it was because of my good friend Billy Gunn, who I must always thank contractually. I mean, because he's my friend. <laughs> now, was this at IWF in Florida with Eddie Mansfield? Was that where you guys kind of knew each other That's from? That's where we knew each other from, and we always nice. were friends. Nice, nice. I remember uh, a good buddy of mine, his father was really good friends, if not best friends, with Demolition Blast, who was in IWF for a little bit, uh, Carmine. So I don't know if you remember Oh, my him. God. Yeah. Him, that was uh, that was cool. That was in sort of the latter days of the IWF. But when we started in June of 91, it was all fresh faces. It was all new people who had never been really seen before with, at the time, Universal Studios was in Universal Studios Florida was valued at six hundred million dollars. We had a six hundred million dollar backdrop to shoot our TV shows in. We had free run of the park. We utilized the tourist element of it a lot, and that made the made the shows good television and gave the wrestlers exposure. Uh, it was a tough time to start a new wrestling promotion because, again, Smoky Mountain Wrestling, you know, Jim Cornette tells, can tell the same story. The television business was changing. It was very hard to get on stations without paying a significant amount of money. And, you know, so IWF went about as far as it could go. But in terms of making stars, in terms of developing new talent, new faces, new names who went on to do big things in the industry. Oh, you can't argue with, you know, just look at uh, Billy Gunn, Bart Gunn, Jeff Farmer, who had a long run as the NWO sting. Uh, me, who else? Uh, oh my gosh. A host of names, but a lot of guys that, Oh, Rob Van Dam got one of his first television opportunities with the IWF. So we had a, uh, a you know, a, uh, who's who, if you will, of, of the wrestling industry through through the doors of the IWF. Yeah, that's always one of those things because it's hard to get footage. You only see a little bit of it online. Like, it always intrigues me just because I, I know, you know, some of the guys that came through obviously became real big names, but I always, like, want to, you know, to delve more into IWF, but it's actually hard to get the footage. I I talked to Eddie Mansfield, interviewed him probably a couple months ago. He said, like, you know, he doesn't know where the footage is or, you know, it's, it's lost to time and whatever you can find online is whatever you can find. So it's, it's an interesting league. No doubt about it, and it was a a a mix of old and new uh, in terms of uh, sort of the classic wrestling model, classic wrestling territory television model, but done on a much bigger stage and scale. So it was a great place for me as an announcer to learn, and again, having grown up in Florida and listened to Gordon Soley and Championship Wrestling from Florida, that was you know, it was easy for me to dive into and just being young and enthusiastic and try to get everybody over and, you know, making mistakes along the way. But it was done in such a way that we could get through a lot of, you know, greenness or mistakes because uh, the show was so fast paced and fast moving that it was, you know, it was really great. It was just a lot of fun. 
So kind of just going back to the WWF, and obviously, you know, you did backstage interviewing. You were on the announce team on Raw with Jim Ross and Michael Cole. What was kind of just your experience working with JR? Because he is known as, as obviously, in that Golden Soli category, is one of the best ever. But what are your kind of takeaways of working with JR? Well, I learned a lot. You know, we don't really – you don't learn I, – I learned how to prepare as an announcer for from working with JR. Uh, preparation is – one of the great skills that a wrestling announcer has you 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 have um you know kind of the ability to kind of know what you have going in so that always works good but i i learned a lot in terms of it, it, just doing shows in post production too because we did more shows together in post than we did sitting in ringside calling raw and that was where i learned the majority of 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 that from jim uh, Jim was in a tough spot working with Michael Cole and I because it was really three play-by-play guys. And that meant, you know, it diminished JR, and we were deferential to him, but yet we weren't established personalities on the show to be able to have our own points of view. Uh, it, it just wasn't a good fit uh, from a production, from a producer standpoint. I would have never had the three of us together like that. I would have had a wrestler or something with either with J.R. Michael Cole and Jerry you know, Lawler, Callie, like Jerry Lawler, or, you know, uh, like uh, Stevie Richards or someone like that. You know, it's just the name that pops into my mind. Anybody you get a personality from, from the dressing room and let them talk from the wrestler perspective. That would have been for me, a better mix and a better use. And we could have established dynamic personalities out of that. With your time there, I think that this, this, some things just really stick out. I'm sure you heard this a million times, but he got a gun at the Brian Pillman, Stone Cold Steve Austin angle. Yeah. What was that like to shoot? Because as a fan, it, first of all, you know, I'm like, I think, 14 or 15 at this point, or whatever I was, I was young. But I was like, oh, my God, there's a gun involved in wrestling. It's Steve Austin, who's awesome, Brian Pillman, who's great. And you're in there, you know, getting involved, and the gun goes off, and Austin's beating up all Pillman's friends. I mean, what was that like? Is that whole production seemed like it was just – it had to be a ton of fun to shoot. It was nerve-wracking. It was very – it was unsettling. Because you had Brian Pillman in his house who had legitimately just undergone major surgery on his ankle for the second time. And he was a, he just had like a weird look in his eye the whole day. It was just very odd. And it was call, you know, kind of call it as we go along. There wasn't a lot of prep or preparation. I did my one stand up that was outside which was pre-recorded only slightly before raw went on the air and then the rest of it was live live pal so man um and when we got done it was like such a rush such a relief oh my gosh we did this we we just did satellite broadcasting live from brian pillman's house and holy crap i'm sure the world is going crazy about that you know we weren't on smartphones that back then we didn't have twitter so we couldn't see like instant audience reaction. But when we got back to Stanford, apparently there were a lot of people who were, everybody was talking about it. There were some television executives at USA that weren't happy, by the way, brandishing a live gun on television, not good. And uh, it was, and internationally, it was a nightmare because our television partners have different laws, different rules. And internationally, everything had to be so covered up that they couldn't, really air any of it. It was hard for them to put together the international version of raw. <laughs> but again, it was, you know, it's one of those things that like, I realize how monumental it was because here we are so many years removed and people are still talking to me about it. It's like, wow, you know, uh, what a, what a moment in time that you don't realize that the time will be, you're just kind of hopeful to get through it all and not screw up. And yet, so many years later, people remember it like one of their earliest memories from their fandom was, oh, my God, when Brian Pillman had the gun and Steve Austin was breaking into his house and you're screaming. I'm like, yeah, it was, it was real. <laughs> real gun. Real everything. Real emotion. Real reaction, John. You, can't, that, you get that type of atmosphere, you're going to get memorable television every time. Yeah, especially with Pillman, who's known as being a loose cannon. You never know what he's going to do. And Steve Austin, who's just you know one of the all-time greats. But it's one of those things like, wow, like what a moment for sure. Right, exactly. And, 
uh, it's the, you know, so when the WWE eventually inducts me into their Hall of Fame, you know, I'm sure that they're just waiting for the right time. <laughs> you know, that would be what we would talk about. That would be what we would focus on is that moment right there. Yes. And, of course, you got to talk about the attitude error. I just want to mention that the rock was also a big part of you and your backstage kind of bantering going back and forth. And I believe, I don't know if I'm 100% sure on this, but the first time he ever called you a Hermie, I believe I was there. I, and I could be wrong. I think it was East, East Rutherford, New Jersey at the Meadowlands. You are, you are correct, sir. Yes. So me and my buddy. So we always said we were there. So I'm trying to think. I was like, well, I know, obviously, if any show was in Meadowlands or East Rutherford, me and my buddies would go. But I was like, was that the first time? Was that so? The Rock. I guess I'm right. It was there for the debut of Hermie, which was hilarious. We were like, what? What the hell, Hermie? <laughs> so, so funny, so random, but it worked. I mean, that's the Rock for you. He, whatever he says, kind of turns to gold. It always did. And again, nobody else has ever done nor could they ever do, you know, a backstage interview live that is just full of audience participation the way The Rock did. Um, and those moments in time where he would look away and the crowd would start to react and I would look away like somebody's standing over there, you know. And we just had, we just had such fun doing that. It was a blast. And everything that you know, he's trying, I'm trying to make him laugh. He's trying to make me laugh. Neither of us ever broke. And I'm trying to make the backs, you know, the, uh, the crew, I'm trying to make them laugh with my little looks and everything that rocks focused on what he's doing after my part. I just follow with the microphone until the end, he takes it and shoves me. Uh, every once in a while, we'd have a little bit of interplay, a little bit of banter, but I would start, he'd cut me off. My motivation was this is the time where I'm going to you know, I'm going to ask that great question. The Rock is going to say, Kevin, that was a great question. Uh, thank you for asking The Rock. You know, it never happened, right? Every time, hand in the face, insult, uh, hold the microphone for the great one, and then shove me away so we could do his clothes. It was just, again, nobody's ever done it before, and I don't think anybody will ever be able to do it as well as The Rock. Oh man, but it was just great because it was like unpredictable too. It's like, all right, what's he going to come up with now? You know, now like Rudy <laughs> Pooh or you know what I mean? You Some never of the most vulgar yeah. things that have ever been said on television, right? All flying with underneath, just right at the line of being censored. Some of it really pushed that line, but uh, again, what did it do? It always served to sell tickets, sell pay per view, draw people in for the main event, whatever it was. He would insult his opponent. He would then later face his opponent. And it was, it just always, it, it, whether he was making fun of the big show or the undertaker or Kurt Angle or anybody, it always just worked. And he always found a unique way to uh, differentiate each opponent from, you know, it's like Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali always came up with a nickname for all of his fighters, all of his opponents, you know, whether it was George Foreman or Joe Frazier. Uh, and, and again, I think that both The Rock and Muhammad Ali did more to draw attention to their matches, their fights, than, than just about any other fighter in, you know, in history because of their ability to infuriate the opponent and at the same time, always come out never showing, never showing a mark, never getting a bruise, never nothing, always coming back. And, you know, you and Michael Cole and Coachman, I mean, always were like the good straight man for his, you know, comedy routine as well, whether, you know, he's, he's calling you Hermie or, you know, a lot of other funny things. So you guys always played off of him great and uh, great chemistry with you and The Rock. So that's one of those things where it's like magical moments you know were going to happen. You know, he's a big star now. I don't know if you've heard this, John. He's apparently in Hollywood making movies. Uh, oh, maybe, so, maybe. Yeah. yeah. That's <laughs> but, yeah, what a good dude. What an absolute good dude. And, you know, again, knew his father well, Florida. Um, and, you know, of course, Rock and I always had a little rivalry because he was a University of Miami guy, and I went to Florida State. I was real close with Ron Simmons because he was like – he was the re Ron Simmons was the reason I became a fan of Florida State when he was playing there. And so that, you know, I got to work with him, call his matches. It was a, just a treat. Yeah, Ron Simmons, hell of a uh, football player at Florida State. Uh, very few 
defensive linemen will, you know, will be in the whole, uh, Heisman discussion. So just a tremendous, tremendous player for sure. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and it speaks to the dominant play that Ron Simmons had as an undersized, uh, you know, nose guard defensive, defensive lineman, uh, but just had a motor. And, you know, it's kind of the same thing with Brian Pillman, you know, that he, at his size, he played, you know, he was on the defensive line too. Mm-hmm. And it just when you have to work that hard to get where you are, you're going to, uh, you're really going to push the envelope and you're going to find ways to motivate yourself. And I think that makes you a great wrestler because you have to develop that outward personality. You have to develop that larger than life ability to generate plays on the field and make you the focus of the defense so that they focus on you so much that it leaves your, you know, your wingman to be able to get around the end and and sack the quarterback or make the big tackle, free up the play of the linebackers. But if you're the, if you're the focus, you're doing something right. And, and obviously like guys like Ron Simmons and the rock, uh, they, they translated, you know, gridiron success into pro wrestling. Some other things that you did at WB, just to mention, producer, uh, Bite This, which is a great show. You, you know, you were the host of that for a while. He, you know, created a lot of content for them. You had a role in creative, so you're responsible for stuff. And I think the, the old rumor is, the or the old story is, you're the one to blame for the uh, Triple H push, so you're the one that we should kind of uh, throw apples at or whatever and be mad at for this Triple H push that's uh, never-ending. I'm responsible for the relationship between Triple H and Stephanie. That's what I'm responsible for because I came up with the idea along with my wife. My wife is partly responsible. We're both big soap opera fans. And so the idea of Triple H bamboozling Test and marrying Stephanie to screw over Test and also to piss off, you know, his future father-in-law is soap opera 101. And, you know, again, the similarities between the two with their hair down, you know, it would be easy to do. So I wrote this whole big thing up and sent it in. Vince copied everybody like I'm supposed to. And Vince was the first one to write back, all in caps. That's great shit. It's like, wow. (laughs) (laughs) And then Shane McMahon came down the hall and poked his head at my door and said, dude, that idea is crazy. I love it. And they wound up changing it how they needed to, and that's what it was. So it was pretty cool to see, you know, it's cool when you see an idea that you have, uh, you know, come to life. I, of course, wrote the end where Stephanie winds up leaving Triple H, but also leaving her father and becoming this strong, standalone woman. Uh, They wound up falling in love and have children and have been married ever since. So they didn't follow the script as it were. They, they wrote their own ending. A happy ending, I'm sure, John. Yes, yes. But I was just uh, you know, joking, but, but almost a little bit serious because obviously the Triple H push kind of never ended. He just kept elevating himself and, you know, uh, beating basically everybody ever. Um, <laughs> and, you know, for some reason beating Sting and for some reason beating, uh, you know, every, like anybody. Uh, uh, Michaels was a victim. You know, this, uh, Batista gets retired from him. It just was never ending for Triple H. Um, and Cornette, and I don't know if you agree or disagree, but Cornette has a great kind of comparison when he says Triple H. He's like, I don't know why they booked him or, or he thought he was the man or he thought he was the guy. He goes, he wasn't the guy. He's great, but he's he's great at being the guy who works with the guy. You know what I mean? The guy is Steve Austin or The Rock. He said Triple H is the guy that works with the guy. So I don't know if you ever agree with that comparison or not, but I just thought that was kind of an ingenious thing that Cornette came up with. I agree that the the idea of him being the top guy, but again, you have to throw the right people at him then, Okay. And those people become the guy. I felt like they could have done more with Scott Steiner. They certainly could have done more with Goldberg. They could have done more with you name it. And his most, you know, Batista, who was always limited, but got the most out of him, you know, the growth of Randy Orton, you know, through Triple H. So I do see it. I do agree. Um, But who else would they have gone to? Because The Rock and Stone Cold had left. And when they were there, Triple H was in his right spot. He was exactly where he should have been. He was the number four guy. And 
the number three guy was whoever was working with either Steve or Rock. So I, it just, again, I, I understand it. I see it. But at the same time, who were they going to pick after, after those two left? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess, you know, there's certain uh, thoughts to that, but it's just funny, like, when you think about it, I know there used to be, like, memes and gifts or whatever you want to call it about all the guys that he's buried or beat, quote-unquote buried, but beat, but it, it's one of those things where it's like, man, who who is responsible for getting this guy? But I, I think also, gift? too, John, I think that's the, that's the reaction he wanted. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yep. That yep. it used to be that when fans – when their favorite didn't win, they would pay money to go back and see him get another chance, this time in a no-disqualification no match or a steel cage match. But now, and in the most recent years, with the growth of social media, fans react and blame the booker. Fans react and say, oh, this guy's being shoved down our throats. And a reactionary booker, one who doesn't trust in himself, will make an immediate change. And I was there when, you know, debates were happening with, Vince Russo and Triple H about the belt and y'all would take the belt off of Well, why? Because fans won't expect it. Well, that's a terrible reason to do anything. And Triple H was saying, we need to put some solvency around this title. Otherwise it's not going to mean anything. Well, the belt's a prop, you know, no, it's not a prop dude. It's, it's, it's money. It's gold. It's prestige. It's honor. It's the lifelong dream. Oh, but it, blah, 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 you know, whatever. But I think that, the reaction that Triple H got was the re the right reaction. It was just it just manifested in a different way because of how the industry had changed and with the growth of social media. Very true. And then of course, you know, there would be some storylines where you think that the face would be going over at WrestleMania or, you know, big moment and he would win. So there was always that kind of like a little bit of anger from the fans that like, oh, I thought this was gonna be where it turns around and he loses. So you know, what's the difference fans. what's the difference between Switchblade J White and Triple H? Ooh, I don't know. I guess uh, there's athleticism, I guess you would say. But, yes, yeah, character-wise? Well, yeah. wait a minute. Wait a minute. No, 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 no. It's the same story. Hmm. Okay. Sometimes good doesn't triumph over evil. Sometimes evil wins. Now, eventually, evil is going to get his, and I don't mean the character. I mean the, the, the emotion. But sometimes good doesn't triumph. You don't always get a happy ending. And if everything else around it makes sense if everything else in the universe makes sense then it's going to have the right reaction but if nothing else makes sense then what will fans latch on to they're going to latch on to something that they're angry about right we used to do poll we used to do polls on aol this is your after a I, pay-per-view i was probably we, on there i love used to love aol and products yeah and we put this together for vince and vince Afterward, we surveyed the fans and we put a little poll post-match with some comments, blah, 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 blah. If the babyface won the main event of the pay-per-view, 98% thumbs up. If the heel won, oh, maybe 60-40, maybe 40-60. And the comments would be accordingly. And after a while, we started to look at the, the analysis of the numbers and we said, Vince, there's no point in giving you this. Well, why not, pal? Well, and I explained it to him. And he was like, well, I never thought of it. That's a good point. I said, if you're doing this to get a reaction, the bigger the boo, the better. So if you're doing this for a reaction and people are 98% positive, I'm going to let you know. Because that's not the reaction you want. But if, as long as it holds according to form on AOL, they're going to be pissed. If Steve Austin doesn't win, they're going to be pissed. If a rock doesn't win, they're going to be pissed. If Mr. McMahon triumphs, that's a good thing. And he was like, okay, so don't worry about it anymore. But that's really it. It's, it's the psychology of the fan and pushing the right buttons at the right times. And then you can get the right reaction. And sometimes the right reaction isn't a positive reaction. Eventually it needs to be. Eventually you need to have good triumph over evil. Eventually Switchblade Jay White is going to get his. Will it be January 5th? I don't know. We took, you know, they took the long, circuitous road to finally get Tetsuya Naito to the top of New Japan, where he finally got his moment in the sun as the first ever double champion. And what happened? Kenta took it away. And then we went down the road to Osaka, and we sold 11,700 tickets to see Kenta versus Tetsuya Naito. I think that was pretty good.
Yeah. Yep. It, that, you're right. It's all about that kind of return business and how you can get that return business, whether the heel goes over and, you know, the baby fish is chasing or, you know, they, they finally get their triumph and people, you know, pay money to see. Yeah. Very good point. And I like that you're kind of explaining it to, uh, to Vince and he's agreeing or, you know, he's not being, um, you know, uh, argumentative about it. That's great. No, it was, again, I always had a good relationship with Vince. I haven't seen him since I left. So I don't know if I had a conversation with him now, if he'd even remember me or, you know, what kind of conversations people can have with Vince now. I'm not sure if there's a whole slurry of writers swarming around him that you got to work through to get to even sit down and talk to Vince. But back then it was pretty simple. Yeah, no, you hear different things now about him, how like people are guarding the door. You got to wait four hours, maybe sneak up to him in catering. Yeah, it's weird. I guess it was easier back then. It was very easy. We had an open door policy. We had an open email policy, open submissions. You want to submit an idea? Here, put it in the email. So uh, Steve Carino and I kind of mastered the art of the um, submitting the crappy idea in ROH, which is a lot of fun. Some <laughs> real stinkeroos. But we had, a, we had an idea in mind. The idea was we're going to try to get this one idea over, right? So we would first lead with, the real terrible idea, you know, just the worst creative idea ever. And everybody would be like, what are you talking about? Boo, oh, that's awful. No, okay, okay. If you don't like that one, how about this one? And it would sound great, right? Because we've couched it with this stinkeroo. And more times than not, then we got, you know, different ideas through an ROH. But it was uh, – it was always fun in WWE and then it became not fun as the layers of corporate vice presidentia grew as the company turned public and everything started to get wonky and down and they don't know why. Well, you just lost the last, you know, the two biggest stars of, you know, this or probably any other generation with the rock and Stone cold. So, um, yeah, that's going to affect business. For sure. Now, I wanted to mention this because obviously a big part of WBF forever for years. Obviously, he's been a head booker. He's been the uh, the VP. He's been all these different uh, jobs and, and really kind of the finish man and the guy that puts things together. And, you know, if Hogan and Warrior need to work out their match, he was there. If Brett and Michaels need to do it, if Michaels and Kurt Angle. So that is Mr. Pat Patterson recently passed away. What are your kind of thoughts and memories of Pat? Uh, I had a, you know, I had a real... A uh, spot of my heart for Pat, who was just a, a gem of a human being, and it's been wonderful to go on and, and read so many great tributes of Pat. I was watching old memories of Pat, you know, from his brief time in Championship Wrestling from Florida in the late 70s today. He was uh, just a great guy. And I, I put out on Twitter, you know, that I, I when I had time with Pat, I listened much more than I spoke. I would ask him a question and I would learn so much. And I watched him, the way he would navigate the waters and the way he talked to Vince and the way he spoke to the wrestlers and the way he would uh, explain things and the hows and the whys of doing it. And again, with all of his experience and with all of his knowledge in wrestling, that's one avenue. Then the second avenue is what a pioneer he was. I remember asking him, you know, was it, was it difficult being gay? Was it, you know, did, was it something that you had to hide? And he said, no, I never hid it. But nobody believed me. You know, and this was in the 60s. So it was like, what? They didn't believe you? Yeah, because it wasn't a thing. Because he was seen as such a manly man and this, that, and the other. Such a tough guy. Such a great wrestler. It just. It wasn't even a thing. He never tried to hide it. He never tried to conceal it. They just didn't believe him. <laughs> so it was fascinating to realize that I'm with somebody here. It'd be like working with Sputnik Monroe. If Sputnik Monroe was the best Finnish guy ever, because that's really what Pat was. Pat was a trailblazer. He was a pioneer. He was way ahead of the curve. And he was just damn brilliant when it came to pro wrestling. He just knew everything and knew the right thing to do at the right time. So uh, just a remarkable man. I'm glad I got the opportunity to know him, work with him, 
And, um, you know, mourning his loss, as all fans are, but we've got a generation of, of memories on the WWE Network from his silly nonsense, you know, with his great friend Jerry Briscoe as one of the Stooges to all the fantastic main event matches. You watch a main event match in WWE, and you can, you can see his fingerprints on them. So um, others have tried to duplicate his success with diminishing returns. There will never be another Pat Patterson. Yeah, you always hear that, either if it's Hogan or Brad or Shawn Michaels. I mean, all the top guys always kind of praise Pat Patterson for helping them with the match or helping them lay it out or helping it make more sense. And I always hear, and I've been hearing even more stories lately about how he would go back at Vince and everyone else, you know, there'd be a lot of yes men or people saying stuff, and he would tell Vince, no, this is the way it is. You know, I, I'm more experienced than you. I know what I'm doing. Sometimes with smoke around Vince, even though Vince hated smoke. Like, you hear these funny stories about him, how he, you know, he knew what he knew and he was confident about it, and everyone else basically said he's a genius. Yeah, and, and that was one of the things that, again, a skilled communicator, he never had a problem going and telling Vince that Vince was wrong about a particular idea. And more times than not, Pat got his way. And sometimes the conversations would be heated. I will tell one funny story. We were in Atlanta, Georgia. And I think we were at the Georgia Dome. And there were a slew of, uh, you know, seekers, as we should call them, non-contracted guys who weren't booked on the show, who would just show up and might have their gear in their car or whatever and more times than not, I would sort of talk with them because I was at one point, you know, I was kind of helping like just coordinate the the booking of those extras for whatever. We need cops. We need security guards. We need extras in the ring. Okay, so I would just kind of funnel that information through. But there was one guy who showed up in Atlanta who didn't have any gear but showed up in character. And this guy was dressed like a pimp. And he had the full suit on and the rings and the walking stick and the whole deal. And it wasn't Godfather. So I'm talking with him and I'm trying to tell him, listen, it's not, you know, it's probably not the right time. It's probably not the right time. And Pat comes over and he's listening to our conversation. And he says, you know what you need to do? You need to come with me and you're going to go right into Vince McMahon's office and you're going to tell him, I want, I want a job here and I want to work in WWF. And the guy says, all right, sounds good to me. I said, okay, Pat, you got it. I know what Pat's doing. Pat takes him into Vince's office, and he's explaining something to the guy, walking and talking the whole time, blah, 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 blah. And he goes into the door, and then Pat comes out a minute later, and he's looking around, looking for Vince and laughing. So the two of us are standing across the, you know, aisle, if you will. It's a big building. It's a Georgia Dome. So we're a good 20, 30 yards away. And we're standing over there, we're sipping coffee or doing whatever, and we're just waiting. And here comes Vince. And we're like, oh, God, here he comes. And he goes into his office, and he closes the door. And it's 30 seconds, a minute, minute and a half, door opens. And Vince is nicely walking this gentleman out <laughs> of his office. <laughs> and I have no idea what was said. And Vince shakes his hand and says, thank you. And Vince... As the guy takes like two or three steps away, Vince looks to his left, Vince looks to his right. He knows he's been ribbed, <laughs> but he can't figure out who did it. <laughs> oh, it was so great. And me and Pat just standing there howling, laughing. I don't know if, if Pat ever told him or what, because I never heard anything about it after that. But that was just one of the best times. Oh, my God, we ribbed Vince in Atlanta. <laughs> We're going to have 40,000 in the building that night. I'm you know, participating in a rib. Oh, so great. That's awesome. And he had the balls to do it. He was going to mess with Vince. That's great. Yeah, of course. Oh, so funny. As we hit the wind down and head towards the finish, just got to know all your plugs and social media, where everybody can find you. Best place to find me is on Twitter, at Real Kevin Kelly. Uh, also, Instagram, same name. Every once in a while, I'll put up uh, funny pictures. But uh, Twitter is uh, kind of my home base, and that's the best place to be. And, of course, we'll be continuing the coverage of the two tournaments that are going on right now, uh, World Tag League 2020 and the Best of Super Juniors 27, both on NJPWWorld.com. And be on the lookout, John, for a big announcement coming about Wrestle Kingdom as well in terms of English commentary. And that, of course, is January 4th and 5th. 
We'll have coverage of all the big events throughout the month of December, the finals on the 6th of the blocks, and then the tournament finals on the 11th, both with English commentary. So make sure you're all a part of that. Awesome. Great stuff. Kevin, it's you know, finally great to get you on the show. So thank you so much uh, for all the time and all the great stories. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.